Revelation chapter 6. Which can be found on page 1919 of the Church Bibles, and beginning at verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out second as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked. And there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers, who were to be killed as they had been, was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Father, in your word it says we are blessed when these words are read, and we pray that we would be blessed this evening. We dare to hope that we would see something of your grace in our lives, 
and be reminded of your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, earlier today, we went out for lunch, and uh, for dessert, some of the members of the family opted for the cheesecake, um, which was a dreadful thing, because it was, had it been able to be stood up, it would have been taller than the glass I was drinking from. It was quite a sizable piece of cheesecake, and the biscuity base itself must have been a full two inches thick, and nobody managed to finish it. It's always annoying, and it's sitting in the fridge with people groaning at their tummy, saying, I can't digest any more. Um, and it's a little bit like this when we look at this chapter. Perhaps it's easy to bite off more than we can chew, uh, but I want to have a crack at this so that we understand a little bit more about the times in which we live and who we're called to be. Um, we continue, if you like, in the vision of the throne room uh, and the opening of the scrolls in, in the, uh, by the Lamb. And the scroll, we remember, is the will of God for his creation. And only the Lamb, we learned in the previous chapter, is worthy to open that scroll. No one else, nothing else in the whole cosmos is able and he alone, the Lamb, shares the worship of the one who sits on the throne because he is equal to him. They are one and the same. And now the scene turns to, these, to this opening of the seals. And it's the Lamb who is the principal agent. But what comes out of it is much more familiar, I suppose, in some ways in our cultural history. Because we revealed in turn the four horsemen known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, that was about the tidiest picture uh, I could find of them, and it's important just to be able to identify a little bit about who they are, but not to get wound up on the, on the finer details. Um, there's a formula, though. It's the lamb who opens the scroll, so it's the lamb who releases this, this part of God's will. It's the lamb who is uh, energizing this, who is making this happen. And in the first four scrolls, uh, seals, sorry, we recognize that it's one of the living creatures, we're not told which one, who invites the horseman to come. So this is part of this dynamic. Some, the things of the throne room of heaven are being enacted on earth, and these horsemen are agents of that. Um, if we just focus on the one in the foreground on our picture, um, the first on the white horse has many positive-looking qualities. We like the color white, that's positive, Stand, maybe it stands for purity, and he's got a crown, that's important too, uh, and he is set to conquer. And uh, in some earlier ideas, this was interpreted uh, as being a Christ running ahead of the other three horsemen, trying to spread the kingdom before the others came to ruin it. It was it's kind of, you can understand why, that there's a, a strong sense of this is a positive-looking character, but, but therein lies the deception. We read in Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and wages war. So you can understand how sort of early interpretations talked about this was Christ at work, and the other three were sort of trying to follow up and mess up what he was doing. But if we look carefully, and we have to do a bit of digging around, especially with Revelation, there's a lot from Zechariah uh, in particular, and in this chapter, also a lot from Matthew. 
Uh, but in Zechariah 1, verse 8 and 10, uh, Zechariah is told during, or has a vision, a similar apocalyptic event. I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind him were red, brown, and white horses. So the white horse is one of a set of this apocalyptic cavalry, if you like, and the angel who is talking to this to Zechariah says, these are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. So they're a set of four, and this white figure isn't Christ. In fact, even though he's got a crown and looks imperial and powerful, this authority isn't his own. What do we see is he was given, in verse 2, he was given a crown. And in fact, the word used in Greek is stephanos, which is a victor's wreath, whereas the crown associated with Christ is a diadem, which stands for a royal crown, and only Christ can wear a royal crown. So this idea of conquest is very much an attribute that this first rider has been given. It's something, an authority that has been given, and he goes off to conquer. And although Christ is associated with a sword, faithful and true, and a two-edged sword from his mouth, um, he's never associated with a bow. And so there's a sense here in which the Greek god Apollo is being depicted. Uh, and in this case, I mean, he was popular in worship at the time, as I'm sure you've been discovering in some of your sort of own reading and notes uh, and home groups. Um, but this, false, uh, this rider represents false religion. Apollo presented as, as, as an amenable and popular religion, that he was very powerful, and, and his words spread across. So this first rider represents that false religion, in this case Apollo, and the pagan empire, sort of the Greco-Roman empire, that conquered the world and brought that false religion with it. So there's a sense in which this first rider is going out to conquer people in the name of a false god. That's just an important point to start with. The other horses are sort of fairly straightforward, but Apollo's one about which there's been historical confusion. The second horse is therefore much clearer. Fiery red suggests not just war, but bloodshed, and he will cause chaos through warfare and violent division amongst people. It's notable that in the um, Jewish revolts and the civil wars, more Jews were killed than anyone else. People killed one another. Think about the Spanish Civil War. You know, people turned on one another. And if you're thinking about that, perhaps you're already thinking about uh, Jesus' words to his disciples, about people turning on each other. Father will betray son to death. So it's interesting that this fiery red horse will not just cause war, but internal wars, struggles, people turning um, upon each other. And he's given power, notice that again, he is given power, to remove peace and this great sword. He does have a sword. And this is reminiscent of Jeremiah, uh, which is one example, uh, 25, uh, one example where Jeremiah sees God's sword of judgment upon Israel and the nations. That's Jeremiah 25, 38. So there is a sense in which this is part of God's judgment. The third rider is perhaps the most relevant or the most uh, the one that affects us the most. Here we are in the relatively comfortable West, and yet the third one is probably the one of which we're most aware. 
The third one is about economic injustice. Okay, it's about the oppression of the poor by the rich. Because a denarius, a day's pay, would normally buy 16 quarts of wheat. But here, it buys just the one. It's a basic staple food becomes scarce and expensive. And barley, which is also quoted there, is, um, it, which is less nutritious and therefore cheaper, and the choice of the poor is worth even, uh, is, is still worth a lot, uh, a lot as, as well. It's an expensive, um, it's an expensive commodity. One would expect to get sort of 20-odd quarts of barley for a denarius, and here just three. So it's talking about how with war and famine and, and division and imperial conquest, so you can see where the finger's pointing in, in, in how Jesus is revealing this to John, showing what's going on in that context. We can see how this imperial war-making machine is actually oppressing people in lots of ways. And it creates uncertainty as well. We know about uncertainty. I'm not even going to go there. But we know about uncertainty. When will it happen? When will I, will I be okay? But intriguingly, this third rider is also told, do not damage the oil and the wine. And as is true with most conquering, conquesting uh, peoples and nations, they look, make sure that the good stuff, the expensive stuff, the worthwhile stuff, is untouched so that they'll be okay, and that there'll be something with which to make some money themselves. And that's often the theme, isn't it? That uh, they protect, a nation is conquered for a resource, and they keep that, and the poor, well, they'll just have to make their own way. But we've got what we came for. And I think we see those sorts of stories sometimes across the, uh, across the news. I'm minded of a story about Shell. I'm not going to go anything misquoted, but, you know, sort of plung, uh, plundering for oil in Africa and, and how the impact of things there were, were economically devastating for the locals and of, and of no benefit. So we see those things happen. And the fourth rider, we're nearly there, is death. And the pale rider, it's where the, <laughs> pale is where we get the word chlorine from. <laughs> Don't know why. Pale rider, to whom is given power, notice, again, given power, to consume a quarter of the world. And in many ways, he is the most terrifying because he has a relentless grip on human destiny. He just keeps taking and consuming, and he uses any means left to kill and destroy. And it's interesting that Hades, which was a sort of a, a Greek idea of hell, is also brought into this picture that death and destruction and judgment uh, are all coming along with this fourth horseman. And although later on in Revelation we read that death and Hades themselves will also be swallowed up as part of God's final judgment, here, and that's in Revelation 20, verse 13, here they are active parts of God's judgment, as Ezekiel foresaw. The death and Hades would ride out as part of God's judgment. And so these four horsemen are, sort, are, are out there. They're, they're released. Come, they're given authority, and they go. And they, they wreak havoc and cause chaos 
uh, around the world, which any student of history would be able to, to look at and point to quite easily. And anybody reading the paper today would be able to say, yeah, why? And maybe we shouldn't ask why, but we should, what, what now? It, it would be a good question. Now, there's a pattern which repeats with the trumpets and the bowls in that the first four of each of these are sort of some general sort of picture. And then the next three build towards God's, um, God's final sort of consummation, God's uh, final um, rescue, if you like. And so these fifth and these sixth seals start to show us a little bit more, but they are in that context of still the coming judgment of God. And the fifth reveals the, the, the martyrs, who I want to talk about in a moment, because I think they're really interesting and actually the most maybe the most helpful part of this passage for us. Um, and the sixth, well, I mean, what do you say about the sixth seal? I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Here's a picture of a future time absolutely terrifying absolutely terrifying there'll be a day where all of creation in order to be renewed is going to be raveled up rolled up taken away and there will be no place to hide this uh, if you notice in verse 15 greco-roman society was was even more class structured than we are more class structured than india um, and and so every layer of of society there is going to be affected by this. It, this disaster will fall upon all humankind, whatever their status, low-born or powerful. Earthquakes were uh, common in the region, as we've read earlier, uh, with some of the letters. But here we're to see that they're the, the precursor, they're part of God's judgment. They're the beginning of, of what's going to happen. So it's quite a challenging uh, passage to read. And actually, I'm not sure I want to be around for that day. You know, not sure where I want to be if that day happened tomorrow. I'm not sure I want to be a witness to that. The, the terrifying, awesome power of God in unmaking his creation to renew it. We trust that there'll be something beyond there, a far country we don't yet see. But at the same time, we've got to go through that. That's got to happen. It's part of who he is. It's part of his judgment. Well, that's a lot of what, what's going on. Uh, and I want to touch on a couple of things. First of all, there's God in salvation history. I think there are a couple of things to say here. And the, this is the best one, okay? And I'm not going to claim credit for this. This is Ian Paul, whose commentary on this we've all been sort of touching on uh, and using. And he says this. This is not a description of God's will for the world but a description of, of the world about which God has a will. I'll put it in bold here, so I'll say it twice. Uh, this is not a description of God's will for the world, but it is a description of the world about which God has a will. You'd rather not do this, but this, this is how it's worked out. The world he made needs this to be restored. And I think it's important to get, get our heads sometimes around that each of these seals and each of the, the seventh of everything will reveal God's work in a magnificent, climactic way that brings 
renewal and, and the new heaven and the new earth. But just as there's no mercy without love, there's no justice without judgment. And so if our God is holy and, and, and holds these things together, then the two have to happen. So judgment is, is, on, is a theme and it's something that must happen. And it, it will come. And I think that's a, that's a question, that's an issue that we can often duck away from. I think it was the head of philosophy at Yale who says, you know, I, I'm sure uh, there may well be a God, but I just hope there isn't. I don't know for sure. What are you going to do with that? You're going to actually wrestle with that. And as I said last week, sometimes we know people who believe in God, but they're not sure what he's like and what he's prepared to do. What he's prepared to do to save them, but what he's prepared to do in order to bring the order that he wants. And it's a little easy, isn't it, to sort of pick on some of these events and go, oh, that's this, that's this, and that's the other. But actually, these horsemen have been at work for some time. They've been told, come. They've gone. They've been given, present continuous. They're off. They're out. That's the way of our world. That's the shape of it. This isn't some, the horsemen aren't something we're waiting for. That's the, that's the country. That's the world we live in. First four set the tone of where we explain what we're like. The next three set well, how are we going to get out of this? What's going to happen? And there is grace even within this. It, it can seem really hard, doesn't it? These are tough, tough passages. And, and judgment and hell are very difficult topics for people. But as I said, you know, if, if God is, if, if we have a God who's consistent, if we have a God who, belie- if, we, if we believe in a God of justice, then, then judgment's out there somewhere. And John Piper puts it like this, you know, that if you mess up in your maths teacher's classroom, you mess up in his lesson, he can punish you for what you've done in his lesson, can't he? But we live everything under God's authority. Everything. Our breath, our thinking, what we say, what we plan, all of those things happen under God's authority. And he has the authority to do with us as a result what he will when we mess up not an easy lesson, but it is a lesson. Nevertheless, God's authority in this, his sovereignty over these events, is still evident. Did we notice that power is given? These horsemen don't have it of their own. It is given by God to do his will. Remember in Acts 17 is a really good passage to get into our thinking because Paul there engages with the world and says look there's a God who's been shifting boundaries and making nations rise up against each other and throw each other down turn us towards God so this power excuse me this power is given to these to these horsemen so that people might turn to God the second way we see that there is a limitation uh, in some respects into the into the horsemen's um, power in the in the in the example of the fourth horseman, he can only affect, it seems, a quarter of the earth. So there's a limit. And again, with the martyrs, their persecution continues, and we need to be careful here, but the person continues until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. There are limits to what these, uh, to what these events do. So God's sovereignty over these events is, is sort of evident, even though we can lose sight of it. And I think we can lose sight of it. 
That's why last week was so important to remind ourselves there's a lamb who sits on the throne who died for us to make us his. Because the next couple of chapters are quite tough. Well, if that's God in salvation history, and this part of salvation history is the sort of the judgment that comes before what's called the consummation of all things, the renewal of all things, then what about us? Where do we stand in salvation history? Email. Well, just for a little bit of homework, and if you want this slide, I can send it you by email or print it off for you. Um, Jesus identified all of these chaotic, destructive forces at work when warning his disciples in Matthew 25, verses 5 to 9. So we see that there are deceivers, that's the false religion. Uh, there's war, that's the red horse. Famines, that's the black one, because he's causing uh, shortages. And there's death all over the place. And we can see the sort of the general chaos that Jesus warned his disciples to be prepared for. And I wonder how, you know, are we prepared for it? Uh, there's lots of stuff in the press at the moment about preparation, or lack thereof. Um, and it's important to actually say there are bigger things going on about which we need to be prepared. So this isn't news. To the, to the Christians who've got John's revelation and a copy of Matthew's gospel, they're going, aha, I'm putting two things together. I can see where I fit. I can see a little bit more. I understand a bit more about God's big plan. And I can see that it's not hopeless. But let's have a look at these um, martyrs and focus on who they are and what we might learn about them. Let's see. They start out in, in verse 9. He opened the fifth seal and saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So they had died for the word of God and the witness that they bore. That makes them martyrs. It's important. Perhaps they were like Antipas, who we read about earlier, whose faith in the face of oppression and persecution actually caused his execution. And their place under the altar pictures them as acceptable sacrifices to God. Lives lived to his glory. Um, I'm pretty sure you're, you're familiar with Bishop Richard, and he's done quite a lot of work um, overseas. I'm pretty sure he was in Nigeria, and he was taken to a massive, massive prayer meeting. The sort of prayer meeting that takes you 10 minutes to walk to the front that sort of scale prayer meeting. And he was, you know, he was absolutely, he was overwhelmed by, oh, if only in England, that sort of thing. And um, he, he was taken to one side after the meeting by the pastor running it, who took him to a little dirty graveyard the other side of the road. And in there were some, some graves, all of young men from England or Britain. All of them died in their 20s. Many of them only there for a few months. And he was trying to explain to Bishop Richard that that wouldn't have happened without that, without the faithful witness who were prepared to, in all circumstances, give their lives that people might hear the big God and see it lived out. That wouldn't have happened. The big worship meetings, the big prayer, the movement that is the Church of Africa would not have happened except for the blood of these martyrs. I can't remember. I, I can't remember who it was who said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Richard, I think it may be Birmingham. Yeah, thank you. And it's really important that these martyrs gave their lives as acceptable sacrifices. That's why they're pictured below the altar. 
they've given. But they cry out, like we do perhaps, how long, O Lord, when will you exact your justice? How long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And that seems a little bit selfish at some point, doesn't it? But they've given their life to God's cause. They want to see his justice in the face of the world's rejection of truth. And so I can understand perhaps how they feel like that. And maybe it's a righteous place to be. But the answer doesn't come. And I think that's, that's quite interesting. Because then each of them was given a white robe. You see that in verse 11. A white robe. I've made you righteous. A reminder of their cleansing. A reminder of who they are in Christ. A reminder of God's work on them. A reminder that they were acceptable to him. That they were clothed with Christ. That their sins had been forgiven. That when God looked at them, he saw his son, not the dirty, sinful people underneath. However holy and self-sacrificial they were. They're made clean by Christ. So they're given these white robes. And then they're told to wait. In my translation, it says a little bit about rest. It says rest. And then to wait until the work of their brothers and their sisters was complete. Now, I don't think there's a predetermined number of martyrs you'll be pleased to hear. There are, there are world religions and sects that believe that. <laughs> but I think it's more about the completion of the work. You see, the number completed, the word completed is important. Remember in Revelation 3, Sardis' work was incomplete. These martyrs' work is as yet to be completed. And it's part of our work, isn't it? To hold on to that word, and live it out because of our, and be witnesses to it. What is it? You can see that how um, there's a place for the, for the faithful. What is our attitude going to be in this chaotic world that is doing its best to mess us up and grind us down? And I, and I think just God's attitude towards the martyrs here is something to hold on to. Each stage of our lives, and I'm going, to, I'm going to hazard a guess, but I think you're all a bit older than me. Nobody's contradicting it, that's fine. But we go through stages, don't we? We go through stages in our Christian walk. We go through phases where you know, things happen. And when we're younger and young agitators, and I suspect some of you were quite militant, um, based on how you are now, but when we're younger, we, we, can, we can try and change the world around us, and we can try and tackle it and confront it. But we have less of that energy now, and the world is gone, and the world's got bigger and scarier, and the it it's confronting us is, 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 is moved, it's shifted, it's changed. We don't understand it anymore. And we have less ability to do that. But we still have to live in it, and we become more susceptible to and more dependent upon the things around us. We rely on them for it. And I wonder if our relationship with the world around us has become like that, or whether it's focusing on what God has done for us. We see transformation around us, and we wonder what we can do, but actually we kind of rely on it as well. It's a confusing time. 
But there's a spiritual parallel here that may be good for us, that, that God talks about giving them a bit of peace. He talks about um, what he's done for them. He talks about reminding them about how he's made them clean. He talks about acknowledging their sacrifice and encouraging us. We can read that and be encouraged that it's good to stick to God's word and live it out. It's important to hold on to those things, that our witness in a world that's messy actually doesn't reflect that we've become more dependent on the world, but more dependent on the word. That we trust God more than the shifting sands of what's politically expedient. Sorry, I just threw that one in. (laughs) We're less concerned about whatever political preference we have and more concerned that God's justice would be seen. And that we would be known not for being politically motivated this way or that way, or politically shocked by what's going on, but actually we would find ourselves saying, you know, my God is still at the end of all this. That there's a place for me beneath his altar where I really, really want to be when it all ends. There's a place at the end of person because I trust in him. And I want to be the kind of person who he draws in and reminds every day, I love you, I've made, I've made you clean, now trust me. Because ultimately God is in control. That's the frightening thing about this passage, that God's in control. That he's released these things to do his bidding so that people would turn to him and be restored and made whole again. That's the frightening thing. So however the world may see us, we might be seen as intolerant, misunderstood. Yeah, certainly the early church was understood as being cannibals. You know, what sorts of, whatever sorts of things we're accused of, we are still God's people. And let's hold on to that in the middle of what's going on. Cling fast to God. Should we be, just be still? Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, our lives can be lived sacrificially for you in lots and lots of little ways. The choices we make, the ways we speak to people, the, the attitudes we have, the ways we welcome, the ways we think, and we just pray that we would increasingly pour our trust into you, turn to you, that you would highlight in us those things now where we can turn to you, those things that we should give to you, because they're not ours to carry. The burden of them is too great. We don't know how to use them. Pray for those emotions that we're feeling at the moment that that might not be of you, the anxiety, the fear. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. And in this moment of quiet, we pray that you would just comfort us.